On this episode, I speak with Anthony Donskoff. Anthony is the founder and head performance coach at Donskoff Strength and Conditioning. He's also the author of two books, Physical Preparation for Hockey, Biological Principles and Practical Solutions, and the Gain, Go, Grow Manual, Programming for High-Performance Hockey Players. Anthony holds an undergraduate degree from Miami University in Ohio, a master's degree in exercise science from the California University in Pennsylvania, and a PhD in kinesiology and exercise science from Western University in London, Ontario. On this episode, Anthony and I discuss Anthony's background, what did Anthony research for his PhD dissertation, why did Anthony go from a business education to a career in strength and conditioning, Anthony's biggest influences, why is Anthony a coach, I asked Anthony about coaching burnout. Anthony shares with us his training model. I asked Anthony about elastic reactive strength development with ice hockey players. I asked Anthony, how does he learn? Anthony gives us his top and current book recommendations. And finally, if Anthony could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who'd he invite and why? Guys, this was a great episode, Anthony, and I hope you really enjoy it. Okay, Anthony. Thank you so much for making time. How are you? Hey, I'm doing fantastic. Let me start, Robbie, by thanking you, buddy. Um, you know, it, we met a long, long time ago, probably 10, 15 years ago. I knew you first through Mike Boyle's site. Always had uh, fantastic content, great ideas. You were a critical thinker, a rationalist, someone I really respected a lot. Uh, you made a visit in Columbus, uh, probably, and you may know this better than I because um God bless you for doing this. And this is another one of the many cool qualities that you have is you, you did a, a trip uh, visiting uh, some, some some strength coaches, at least in our area in Columbus. I know you went to, to Westside Barbell and you stopped by our gym as well and I had an interesting conversation with you. So let me start by thanking you for what you do for our industry and and, and for being a, uh, a a leader in the field. Appreciate it very much. I'm, for people who can't see, I'm blushing, which is rare. <laughs> So, um, yeah, that was 2015, seven years that, ago. Gosh, that was, it seems like time's flying by, but I do remember it distinctly. And you had another individual with you. What a nice guy he was. And my memory's like my hairline, so I'm bald. I, I forget his name, but he was a really sharp person as well. Uh, and, and we had a chance to sit down and speak for 20, 30 minutes. It was a great conversation. Yeah, it was really cool. So the, the gentleman's name was John McMahon. Um, yeah, John. So, uh, and just for our listeners, well, definitely very <laughs> Irish listeners. John, John is from the north, so he is. And that summer, John was coming to intern at Boyles, and that summer, I was actually I, I worked at Boyles. I just did like part time summer. It was really funny because a lot of the staff was like they thought I was like re interning, and I was like, why would I come back to re intern? And they were like, well, I don't know. It's like I, I worked as part time because Mike at the time my plan had been to go back to not go back go to I never had been but it was actually to go to college as an undergrad back in Ireland and every summer go go back to Boyles to earn like my some money for the year yeah. coming but I didn't get in <laughs> which is which is hilarious because so many people so it was just basic sports science like undergrad in Ireland wow. and, and I didn't get in like so I interviewed my interview was terrible though but like I to be honest. <laughs> If, if I'm being honest, I, I was just being, I was far too arrogant. I was like, I'll definitely get in. You know, I showed up to that interview, like in just like a Mike Boyle hoodie and tracks about them. And like when I didn't get in, like I, I asked, like, you know, like some feedback 
And like I knew one of the guys on the in, in the interview panel, and he was just basically like, "You're an idiot! You showed up in a tracksuit! Like, what were you thinking?" Because 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 as I walked in, like I saw other people like you know in shirts and slacks and ties, and I, and yeah. I was thinking, I was thinking, just a bit much for a sports science, you know, degree yeah. course. And like my friend who was on the panel, he was just like, "Like, what were you thinking?" And I was going, "Jesus!" Like, and then as I look as I look back now, I'm like, "Oh my god!" And ever since then, anytime I've had to like had any interviews or anything, I'm always like, "I'm I don't care if it was an interview for a bin man. I'm like, I'm wearing a suit no matter what. Like, just so you're, yeah, you're better so to, you're better to overdress oh, and underdress. A hundred percent. And uh, <clears throat> I think we all live in that area early on in our careers too. Uh, you call it Dunning Kruger or whatever. You know, you, you think you have all the answers to all the questions, and as you get older, you have all the questions and no answers, right? Um, but I do remember distinctly uh, my dad teaching me that lesson the hard way as well, and that's always overdress. Uh, we run an internship uh, program right now at our facility, and one of the first things I look at when we when we do our our online Zoom interviews or person to person interviews is dress. And I know it might sound like wow, you know, you're you don't need to be in a suit and tie to be a strength coach, but it, it does tell you about the preparation process at times and the professionality. Um, but I made those mistakes in my career as well. And you, you learn from them and you don't make them again, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And you know, it, it just, I was, I don't know if you know who Connor Harris is. Do you, have you heard of Connor Harris? I, I know him from social media, but I don't know him personally. Is he the gentleman that does all this stuff with, um, uh, like posture, et cetera, biomechanics. Yeah, yep. yeah like he, he's, he, he's like, he, he definitely is his, his own man, but he ha- he's been yep. influenced by PRI because he interned, yep. he did an internship with um, uh, Chris Poulin and Jen Poulin yep. and, and yep. Jen, Jen obviously teaches for PRI, but it's just yep. what, what, what that story of myself going to my interview and then you also alluding to your times when, uh, you know, you thought you were a little bit, you were more shit hot than you were. Yeah. He had a really good story. He was interning at Exos and he was basically told you've a job here like you know what i mean and he was like great you know after his internship but one of the final things in the internship is you have to do a, an assignment where you do like a, a program design so like you i think yeah. you're given i think now uh, i'm not 100 percent sure of the details but i think like you're given like a a made-up case study here's an athlete and here's their their testing numbers and like show them the program and you know in his head he was like i'm done i have my job got like this doesn't really matter and so he was like, I just did a quick thing, printed it off 15 minutes before the presentation, blah, blah. And he gave it in and he says, he goes like, looking back, it was a piece of shit. Like, but he was like, ah, sure. What? I don't put any effort anymore. And then like his uh, intern coordinator, like his boss, basically at the time who told him that he had a job, like set him down and he said, listen, um, this was kind of part of your interview, if you'd like for your job. And he's like, you've lost your job here over this now. And like, he was like in his head, he goes, fuck you so but yeah. the, just that he listening to him tell a story he goes i learned a serious lesson that day and it was just like you're 100 right like even at the time when you get that in that that information like when i heard i didn't get the degree like i was at first like i was devastated yeah um, but then I, I as i reflected i was like and then as i reflect now seven years later i was like what a learning and to be honest too even at the time I, I was, because John, the guy who uh, who you met that day too, like we roomed yeah. together that summer. And even like he'll tell you if he remembers. Like I remember I was disappointed, <laughs> but I knew I knew like like I could still step back and go, listen, one door closes, another one's going to open. And I was like, it's yeah. not the end of the world. Like I'm not, I don't have an immediate illness that's, you know, yeah. in, 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 imminent. Um, 
But uh, after that, like when the word got out that I didn't get it, other people were like, why don't you do this master's at St. Mary's? And it's like they have a a non-degree entry. Because in my head, Anthony, I was like, great, I'll do four year undergrad, then I'll get my master's and then I'll get a PhD. But because I didn't get that degree, I got into the master's. So like I saved myself four years. Do you know 100%. I mean? so 100%. It was just like, it was just kind of like, you know, uh, what's serendipity in a way, you know what I mean? That's the two, two, thing, two, two things. Number one, you said lesson. That's a huge part. Like, uh, you know, I say experience. I think it, experience can be, not no, notice I didn't say is, can be overrated. You can have 15 years of experience or one year of experience 15 times if you don't learn from those mistakes and have fast forward learning. Um, you know, the other thing is, and I say this again, I don't want to, I'm not making you blush, but you are an autodidact. You are a self-taught, like you're a, 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 I remember our conversations, like you're, you're undergrad, you've probably cured the last two years of your readings and, and all of your, all of the other extracurriculars that you do teaching yourself. I know that the piece of paper means a lot, right? I mean, that's your, your hunting license for lack of a better word. But I think the most interesting people that I've had the opportunity to speak with they're lifelong learners. I know the degree is awesome to get, um, but uh, it really is a, a passion away from the quote unquote four walls and roof of the university setting where I think most people thrive in our, in our, uh, in our realm, which is coaching. I didn't know. I didn't say strength and conditioning coaching. So all interesting. So just for our listeners and I'd say be a very small population, but Tell us about who is Anthony Donskoff. I mean, and you can yeah. go about this whatever way you want. Some people like to go from the beginning to where they are now, and other yeah. people like to reverse engineer. They like to start where they are now, and then they go backwards. So fire away, my man. Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll try to do a footnote version. Um, I've been coaching now for going on 20 years. Um, I was uh, born in Canada, moved to the United States of America, were dual citizens in 1990. So I was 12 turning 13. Always wanted to play college hockey. Hockey was a sport that I was very passionate about. Um, moved away, had the opportunity to play in college at Miami of Ohio. Um, at that time, I didn't know what I wanted to major in. I wasn't a business undergrad. And looking back at it, Robbie, I'm proud to be that. I'm happy I did that. It taught me a lot about myself. Had the opportunity to play two years of minor pro hockey, the equivalent of double A baseball. Um, didn't know what I wanted to do after that. But I knew my passion at the time being involved in sports was was the preparation process. I loved it. Um, it was a happy marriage for me. I didn't need to go to the weight room. I loved to go to the weight room. So I tried to parlay that into starting a small business and at the same time getting involved in a master's program. At the time, I had to work. So my only alternative was to go on an online master's formatted course, which I did. Got my master's in exercise science. Business started to grow. Uh, moved to a small brick and mortar, um, and then it started to continue to grow. Uh, so right now, uh, our Don Scott Strength and Conditioning was founded in uh, April of 2005. So we have about a 3,000 square foot footprint in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, most recently, I went back to pursue a PhD as a 38-year-old. I just ended up graduating uh, this past um, uh, fall. Uh, at the University of Western Ontario, which uh, is a university uh, in London, Ontario, Canada, with a kinesiology focus, uh, and here I am now. So we're still uh, we're still um, programming athletes, general uh, pop clientele. Certainly for our athletes, the larger demographic for us is the sport of ice hockey. So two follow-up questions. Firstly, what was your thesis in for your PhD? 
Yeah, it was, uh, I looked at uh, single leg medial counter movement jump. So essentially almost a bound on a force plate. And I was looking at, um, number one, uh, we were trying to uh, see the reliability of that jump in terms of the forces. Uh, and then we wanted to look at normative values of that jump in our population, which was our uh, uh, U18, U16, U15 hockey players and uh, the injuries uh, sustained in the sport, trying to tie that all in. Um, so that was the, the focus of, of, uh, of, my, of my study and my thesis. And the second follow-up. So I don't know if you really alluded to it there with, um, with your opening statement about your background, but what was the sort of switch in your head that went, okay, S&C from business? Like, what, why did yeah. you go into it? I don't know. It's a great question. <clears throat> and again, like I look back at it now for, for the business and the undergrad, I'm happy I did that. I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I did that because I look back at it and everything revolves around, you know, to me right now, at least in the private sector and business backing, you know, you're a serial specialist at that point. You can do a lot of things. If you know, accounting finance, um, you can, you know, um, marketing, et cetera. So that was important. But for me, I, it was my heart, my fault, my passion. I loved, I mean, hockey was always a game that was very special to our family, um, but I, I just love the training process to probably an ignition moment for me. Uh, I had a strength coach uh, at Miami of Ohio, Dan Darrempel. Dan uh, just, uh, geez, he had a pretty storied career in the National Football League with the New Orleans Saints, won a Super Bowl. Um, I think just stepped down uh, as a strength and conditioning coach because a new coach came, uh, new skills coach. Uh, but he was a he was an impetus for me too. I, Dan and I, Coach Darrempel and I, um, uh, got along really well. And, and he, he was a passionate person, um, and uh, I liked the way he did things. I liked the way he created an environment, and uh, yeah, I just enjoyed it so much that I wanted to follow my passion. And and I look back at it now, Robbie. Like, geez, I started the business in a car, and if it wasn't for my parents and, and the support they gave me, it would never be where I am right now. Um, you know, I had one client, uh, and that and that jumped to two clients, and, and my 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 day looked like a five forty in the morning till six forty in the morning, and a seven to eight at night at the time. <laughs> so you're looking at polarity and schedule big time. And uh, if I didn't have the op opportunities that, and the blessings from my parents, you know, I couldn't allow that to foster into a into a, a small business that's still around today. That segues nicely into my next question because. Um... You mentioned your parents there, and uh, my next question was going to be about your biggest influences. And I know your father was someone you really looked up to, and and who you had a, you know, just a, a massive love and respect for. So, and of course, you can talk about your father as much as you want. But along with your dad, who else have been massive influences on you professionally and personally? Yeah, so personally, for sure, we come from a very very tight family. So my dad, uh, my dad was a massive influence on me uh, as a coach um, and as a, as a human being. Uh, he taught us the four D's, determination, dedication, discipline, uh, and desire. And those things my dad lived. He, he came on a, on a boat uh, when he was 12 years old uh, and was a, an immigrant, started with nothing. And he learned and worked the hard way, never made excuses, made his own bed, and, and was a really passionate individual. So someone that uh, that all of us brothers hold in, in such high regard. And he was a, a huge inspiration and continues to be one. My brother, Misha, my brother, Matt, uh, they're both coaches, one um, uh, at high level hockey in the National Hockey League. Uh, my younger brother, Matt, is a, is a co-business owner with I. So they're, they've been huge, huge influences uh, because we come from a tight family. 
But aside from immediate family, I'd say probably <clears throat> two of the biggest mentors to me uh, are Coach Boyle and Dan Pfaff. Um, Coach Boyle, uh, gosh, I, you know, as soon as I got in the industry, this idea was success leaves clues. Well, I wanted to look at who the successful people were. And most importantly, were they good people? Um, I wanted to spend time with people that were good people. I've met people as well, and I'm sure you could attest to this, Robbie, where there's really smart people, but I don't want to spend an hour learning from them because their egos are too big to fit in the door. I don't want to be around that. I can learn from maybe a distance from someone like that, but Coach Boyle was always a guy that, for me, simplified things and made things that I thought were complicated at the time uh, sound a lot easier in terms of measure, uh, measures of the pragmatic approach to things. So I, I flocked to him. And, and to the kind of person he was. I could pick up the phone right now with Mike and we we pick up where we left off and I'd have a beer with him like it was, you know, we didn't even, you know, we hadn't seen each other. Um, so great human being. And I'd say in my more recent years, probably the past five or six, Coach Dan Pfaff, uh, outstanding human being. Um, gosh, an encyclo encyclopedia of knowledge. I always say good mentors do not tell you what to see, but they point you in the right direction. Those two individuals were massively important and still are. And I'd say not so much mentor, but like personal friend that I can bounce massive ideas off of is Fergus Connolly. Fergus is a good buddy of mine. Like we have conversations probably weekly or maybe bi-monthly where we just talk about life, um, his experiences, my experiences, and like massively, massively learning a ton of stuff just through conversation and really general conversation. So. All, all three of those individuals have had an important part in my, in my journey and continue to be mentors, friends, and, and people that I admire. Great answer. Next question, another big one for you. Um, why do you coach? Oh, gosh. <clears throat> I think great coaches fan the flame of the human spirit. I love watching people grow. I like watching people um who potentially, you know, haven't reached uh, their, 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 their threshold as, as, as both individuals and athletes. I'd like to help them be a small part of that journey. That's my passion. Um, so I, I think in a, I think in a, a really uh, footnote version, I, I true, truly believe that great coaches do that. That's why I coach. Um, and uh, to me, it's, it's, it's a blessing to be able to work with, with, uh, with people on that journey. Fantastic answer. And a follow-up to that. And it's, it's a conversation I would say myself and yourself could have for a, a yep. number of hours. And I think it's one that's very important for other coaches to hear. How do you maintain that passion? Because oh. you, you, you know, as you know, as My well God. as I do, the, the, the big conversation <laughs> for the last, it's probably, it's been around for as long as coaching has been around, but it's really starting to come to fruition. Maybe the last five years, like really getting more awareness, particularly with the work of like Brett Bartholomew, but so yeah. many, so many coaches are just burnt out and you see that just, there's so much residual yeah. effect of that, that just bleeds into their everyday life. The family life goes to crap. The, the, you know, just their, their own happiness and well-being starts to deteriorate. So, how well, how do we sustain that passion and, and not burn ourselves out? Well, that's a tough question, and I think it it really depends on the individual. Let me let me start by saying, <clears throat> let, I, I want to answer your question, but let me start by digging into some issues that we face as strength and conditioning coaches that I feel right now, and then I'll talk to you about how I've handled them. 
if you look in North America right now, so we're not talking Europe, <clears throat> we're not talking Asia, China, whatever. We're talking North America. And I this is Google, so don't quote me on my research. This is Google. 35,000 undergrads a year in kinesiology, a year. Let me repeat that, 35,000 graduates, undergraduate. That's not including masters, that's not including PhD. Let's hypothetically say that half of those people, let's say under half, 15,000 say, man, I wanna be a strength coach in the National Hockey League. There's 32 of those jobs. Let's hypothetically say every one of those coaches has an assistant, 66 jobs. 15,000 people going for 66 jobs, you have a less than point than 0.004 chance of getting in there, okay? So number one, the barrier to entry for young coaches out there listening, I just wanna be a professional. That's, that's a tough road to hoe. That's really tough. The other thing is that, and I'm pointing my thumb at this, Robbie. I just got a PhD in kinesiology. We have a payment problem. People, you know, you, I, I got off the phone with a top five strength and conditioning program in college hockey the other day. They're looking for a brand new strength coach. They're, they're, they're going to be a, a strength and conditioning coach for the team and two other teams. So three total teams. They're going to pay that individual close to $40,000, which if you think about that, for all the work that's being done, that's not a lot of money in the U.S. Now, that might even be less in Europe. So what's happening now is we're, we're falling under more academia. Well, I'm going to get my master's. I'm going to get my PhD. And if we don't figure that problem out, then what happens is we increase the number of winners and the quality of winning continues to stay the same or goes down. So now I'm going to pay you $40,000, Robbie, but it's not going to be a master's. I want my PhD. Do you understand the problems that we're getting into? This is a tough cycle. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if we need to have a union. I don't know if there needs to be. I don't have the answer, which frustrates me because I'm presenting a problem without coming up with the answer. But I can tell young strength coaches, it is a tough business to hoe. And I'm not just speaking about the professional sector. Look at the private sector. If you take Don Scott's strength and condition in Columbus, Ohio, and throw a baseball 100 feet one way and 100 feet the other way, there's two, three gyms. The barrier to entry looks like my hairline. Anyone can be a strength coach. We have a, a supply and demand problem in strength and conditioning. It's a scary, scary landscape right now, in my opinion. We have way, way more supply, and the demand uh, in terms and measure is, is skewed in the teeter-totter, so to speak. So I think there's a, 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 it's, it, the landscape is only getting worse until we try to rectify that situation. And again, I don't know the answer. I don't know if it's a union. I don't know if people need to, to come together. Um, but there's a supply and demand problem. Now, you ask me, uh, how do I overcome burnout? Well, for me, it's, it, it's what I like to do away. I, I find my biggest passions away. You're looking behind me. I love to play the guitar. I like to write poetry. I like to create. Um, also, for me as well, and I need to do a better job of this, I enjoy creating content. Um, I, uh, you know, in terms and measures of uh, writing, I, I like to write. I wrote two books. Um, I like uh, uh, education. I just came out with a, a, a course called the High Performance uh, or Hockey Masterclass. So these are things that I find passion with, and I hope to be able to, uh, you know, uh, parlay some of this stuff specific with my PhD into, into trying to create residual income streams. 
at least with, with, but that's a passion of mine. So I don't, I don't view that as work. It is work, but I try to, to have some sort of re residual. And then for me personally to shut off, I like to walk my dog. I like to write poetry. I like to write music and I like to get on my guitar. I know that was the long answer, but. <laughs> oh, it's, it's perfect. And you, you love spending time with your, uh, your family too. You've, ne you've nephews, yeah. don't you? I, I do. I've got, uh, so two brothers, one of my brothers lives in Vegas. Another brother here lives in Columbus. I've got uh, a nephew and I've got two nieces and I try to get involved. He's playing hockey right now. So he just turned seven years old. So I'm, I volunteer coach with my brother. So it gets me back involved in the game. Um, I, uh, uh, I try to shut off. I, I find a lot of peace away from the weight room. Don't get me wrong. I love the weight room, but I think it's really important that you find something that you value away from it that, 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 uh, that keeps you fresh. Great stuff. And again, your, your, uh, your segue, your segue, 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 whatever that word is, segue, segue. Is there such thing as segwaiting? Anyway, the next segue, <laughs> you're, you're, you're making great segues. I'll put it out. You're making great segues yeah, there you go. because you, uh, you, you mentioned a weight room there, which kind of leads into the next question, which, um, tell us about your model. So if you like your principles, yeah. and how, how has that evolved over time? Sure. Um, yeah, let, let me, um, I'll, I'll try to simplify it. So, to me, we, we really are look at it just from our athletic standpoint. So if, if we want to talk about general pop, I can talk to you about that as well. But let's just take a look at the athletes that we train and, and I'll break it down. Um, so for, for us, let's just take a sport such as hockey, uh, which again is the lion's share of the athletes that we work with. There's really two models that we use, okay, for young athletes with minimal training age. And when I say minimal training age, we'll throw a number out there, six, seven years or less of training age. It really is a really simple, simple program. It's just straight linear periodization. It's progressive overload. It's nothing fancy. It's variety. It's, it's uh, manipulating the acute programming variables over time. Where the goal is to build a better athlete. Uh, you can say it's a hockey specific. It's not really. Push, pull, hinge, focus on acute programming variables. And let me be specific with the listeners. Exercise, exercise, order, intensity, rest, tempo. These are all important acute programming variables that will manipulate over time. But if you look at the actual model, it literally is a linear periodized model. It's progressive overload. It's the old story of Milo and the cow, right? Now, we, we talk now with a different model. So now we've seen an athlete, and, and we've been lucky in our, in, our, in our practice, Robbie, where we've seen, we've worked with organizations, uh, specifically one organization for the last 15 years. So we've had an opportunity to, to really uh, focus uh, and some of these uh, guys uh, and girls who no, not just train in season, they choose to train with us in the off season. So we might have, for example, we just got done training a, a pro hockey player that's leaving. I've, I've, I've trained, had the opportunity to train him for over 10 years, 15 years, uh, 12 years, excuse me, it's a long time. So for our advanced level and professional level hockey players, we use a model called, excuse me, a gain, go, grow model. Now, if you say, what is that? What, what physical barriers do you have to hit to get in a model like that? Is it 1.5 times your body weight? Is it X? No, it's none of that. Do they play at a high level, professional, collegiate, where they are almost making a living doing so? And have they had a well-coached program for seven plus years? I don't go by, by, by numbers like that. I, I think it's important for people to be strong. But I, I tell you, from all the years that I've seen in hockey, Sometimes I think we confuse it. Like it's easy for us as strength coaches. We think we're building efferent beasts. That's awesome. 
some of the best players in the world that I've had the opportunity to work with are afferent beasts. Yeah, they're strong. Yeah, they're, they know they know how to hit the weights, but they can use that strength and use that speed when it matters most. The timing, the coordination, that's important. So the model going back is a gain, go, grow model. It is a literally, if I were to marry Dan Fast three-day rollover program with um, uh, Big House's tier system, it would be a happy marriage. Gain, go, grow. Monday, lift heavy things slowly. Couple that with acceleration work. That's your gain day. Wednesday, go day. Lift submaximal weight for speed. Acceleration work. Accelerate. Excuse me. Sprint work. SSC plyometrics. Grow day. Lift submaximal weight for time. Longer impulse. Frontal plane plyometrics. Why three days, Robbie? Well. I've got a couple heuristics in that gain, go, grow model for elite level athletes. The bigger the athlete, harder it is to trip homeostasis because they have a higher training age. More homeostasis, more intensity, they need more rest, less frequency in the weight room, coupled with the fact that the most important thing for them is the game itself. So we program three days as opposed to four days. The Tuesdays and Thursdays in that micro cycle are low days, they're recovery days, okay? So that's more of a three-day rollover model for our pro players. Um, it is uh, really highly influenced by those two individuals. And uh, it gives them the opportunity to uh, hit high intensities in the weight room, have what matters most be part of their microcycle, which is getting on the ice for touch points, and then obviously being able to, to recover and have uh, a high impact or high intensity um, and, and, and high volition in the gym. So those two models uh, we use right now, youth development models, you know, five, six training uh, uh, years of age or lower, and then our pros and our, our collegiate level athletes that gain, go, grow model. Hope that makes sense. Absolutely. And um, from just an assessment standpoint, when you get new people in, what what does that look like? Is there movement yep. and is there any measurement of physical qualities? Again, I know it'll depend on yep. the age of the athlete and, and training age versus, you know, et cetera, experience and stuff like that. Yeah. So um, let me start with, I'll, I'll, I'll start with our, our pro level players. Um, and then I'll, I'll go back down to our youth hockey players that we work with in season. Pro level hockey players, just like I would with a youth hockey player, anytime I look at metrics, I say training is, uh, is measure, measure is training. How can we fit that into a training environment without a quote unquote testing day? I want to look at what are the best and highest correlates of the sport itself, which is really hard to do. I think sometimes we mistake the low hanging fruit for the bountiful harvest when it comes to collecting metrics, the hardest things to measure those closest to the scoreboard. Having said that in the sport of ice hockey, what correlates and is, is, is the closest related to skating ability and that sprint work and jump work. So we measure uh, force plates. We have a, the opportunity to use force plates. We, we, we tack our metrics and I don't overcomplicate this, Robbie. I think uh, there's thousands of metrics to choose from. I'm highly influenced by a few people. And then I, I, I want to look at mechanically what goes on in the sport. So we'll look at a couple uh, force plate metrics. We will have time tens. So with laser times, we will do body composition because body composition we feel is really important for acceleration. Um, and uh, we will track uh, internal load. So trim, trim per minute uh, to get an idea of how we want to uh, structure the microcycle. So that in a nutshell is how we would track over time our KPIs for our pros. 
for our youth athletes, a little bit different. Now, this is in season. We'd come in. We're going to start with this uh, next year. So we didn't uh, have our, our force plates last year for our, 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 uh, our youth hockey players, but we will. The question I always ask myself, and I'm getting on tangents here, is, is I want to be able to build that, that data over time so I'm better able to answer what's good. Because I think a big uh, concern I have when I look at all the measures going on now these days is like, have you collected any longitudinal data? Like, how do you answer the question, what's good? Like, I don't, well, it, you know, he, he has an uh, MRSI of X. Okay, compared to what? Is that good? <laughs> you know, you, you, be, you have to be able to collect that over time. So for our young hockey players, they'll do time tens, they'll do chin-ups and weighted chin-ups. They'll do a metric that's very similar to, to the NHL combine, which is a watch per pound bench. They'll choose half their body weight. They'll, they'll measure mean velocity and they'll get three reps as fast as they can. We're going to track that over time. Um, we're going to do a vertical jump. This year we'll do it on, on, on force plates. Um, we don't do any lower body strength uh, assessments prior to the on season because they're on the ice twice a day during that time. We don't do any quote unquote energy systems for the same reason. It's a combination of resources and time of year. Last thing I'll say that we're going to add to that menu list with both of our pros and both of our um, youth our youth athlete population, and it may have an effect on some of the KPIs, but we're going to add an isometric mid thigh pull. Um, and we, we've, got, we've ordered a, um, a piece that literally will fit into our force plates. They're, it's made for Hawk and Dynamics force plates where we're able to jump and get a, an isometric mid-thigh pull at the same time. I read an interesting book, and I know you're passionately curious. I read an interesting book, too, uh, Force by Dan Cleather. And it just made so, so much sense to me. Like Our goal as strength and conditioning coaches is to increase the ability to produce force and access energy. How do you produce force? We talk about impulse. So increase rate of force development, peak force, and or average force. Isometric mid-thigh pull to me can tell me a story about peak force, average force, all of those without taxing the you-know-what out of the athlete. Give me a good narrative without, you know, saying, hey, get back on the ice. That's all I need. Do you know what I mean? Uh, the older I've gotten, the more and more my KPI list looks like my hairline and the less menu items I choose from. I think I stole this from Patrick Ward. The way I look at it is I've got three buckets that I want to look at when I want to assess movement quality. Oh, but that's another one. Sorry, I didn't add. Uh, we'll do a, a Y balance, uh, just the posterior medial, posterior lateral. So that's important for us, movement. Performance. So what are my performance? And the athlete's ability to tolerate stress. In this day and age, it is a vast landscape. You can have thousands of like if you just look at Hawkins Dynamics, you can get 500 different variables. It's hard to separate the signal from the noise. What matters most in the sport? What has the greatest reliability to measure? And just track one or two of those over time and be comfortable with it, as opposed to spreading yourself thin and not even knowing what you're looking at. Those are some lessons I've learned along the way. This is, that's absolutely great stuff, Anthony. Um, just with regards then to, to movement, why the, why the Y balance? Why, why did you pick that one? Yeah, I think that's a great test for uh, specifically for the sport of hockey to see how the femur and the acetabulum are, are, are uh, 
are moving in terms and measures of the femur on the acetabulum, the posterior medial and posterior lateral, look at, look at, at the, the femur in terms and measures of internal external rotation. Um, so if there's any limitations there, we can address those. The way we do it, I think I said <clears throat> before, we just did posterior medial, posterior lateral. I apologize. We do a, an anterior reach, posterior medial, posterior lateral. So uh, for, for example, if I'm doing a posterior medial, it would be uh, uh, striding straight out. Posterior lateral, if I'm looking at the fixed foot, it's a cross under where you're seeing the femur externally rotate in the acetabulum. And then from there, we created a dashboard. I didn't. My friend Adam Virgil helped me. But we look at adding those total scores up both left and right and seeing if there's any if there's a 10% or greater difference, an athlete may be flagged as a red to look at potential limitations. Um, but I chose those for the mechanics, the biomechanics of what I like to see in terms of measures of on the ice and then looking at them from a gross movement standpoint. I think like everything, and I can go on and on about movement screens. <clears throat> I think people give them a bad rap. Like I know people hate on the functional movement screen at times, and even the Y balance. But to me, they're a starting point and every single measure has a limitation. Like for example, if you sit a, a, an athlete or a, a client on a table and measure hip internal external rotation, just the fact of sitting internally or in, orientates their femur on their pelvis like there, there's no perfect test um the best test is sport and obviously if you're dealing with asymptomatic or symptomatic individuals but for me i just want to look at how that athlete moves uh which th with something very similar to the sport pattern that they're they're uh, they're using for play that's great stuff a question, it's pure, it's perfectly for you. A question I've, I've actually really wanted to get your take on because of your background in hockey. And it's one I actually posted on the strength coach forum a while back. Um, and De I, I specifically actually put it to Devin and, and Coach Boyle at the time. And Jim Rees actually chimed in. It was regards to elastic reactive work with hockey players. Because mm -hmm. I can remember when I first kind of got, got exposed to Mike, when I first got exposed to Mike, and he was, you know, he was yeah. talking about, you know, he's, he really struggled to develop elastic reactive qualities in a lot of his hockey players. But as I, stu as I studied hockey, like, because of the surface ice hockey is played on, the, uh, you know, the, the, the way acceleration is done in, in compared to terrestrial running on the ground and the way the stride, yep. like your stride actually, it's the reverse of sprinting where like your ground contact gets shorter as you, as you sprint, whereas in hockey, the stride, you spend longer time with the blade yep. of the ice. Yeah. And it just, it just made me think of why why would he even want to develop elastic reactive quality? It was just a question I put forward to yeah. to De Devin's basic one was just like he didn't think it it would do anything great for hockey performance, but he just as an athletic quality he still felt it was important to have. And I think Jim made a good point. Is like what I took away from Jim was that it isn't so much that you're looking purely at elastic reactive quality, say when you're accelerating or when you get up to a more higher velocity as you would in sprinting he's like there is elastic qualities in deceleration too and he says that happens on ice when you have to chop your blades into the into the ice too so. that's right i i like i like all the, the 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 explanations mentioned so let's let's backtrack here and talk about a little bit biomechanically what you look for in a hockey player specifically run to glide run to glide meaning your first three five steps on the ice that's a run then as you slow, slowly pick up speed, it's, it's the glide, right? So run to glide. Heuristics of good hockey skaters are very similar to good sprinters with a couple exceptions, okay? So as speed increases, 
ground contact time in sprinting decreases. It increases on the ice. So you have larger impulses, right? Um, when you sprint, eventually, you know, you start from the blocks and you get vertical. On the ice, a low trunk segmental angle is critical. You have to stay low. Uh, as a, On the ice, the goal is to produce quote unquote power. How do you do that? You have to overcome air friction and ice friction and then have a change in kinetic energy. Well, air friction is your big, big boy to overcome. Ice friction is nil, okay? Then a couple more heuristics. Um, uh, as, as, as speed increases, stride frequency should increase. Glide time will increase. And then the recovery leg below the hips, so you're allowed to get you know, larger, larger stride lengths. But that run stage where literally is a little bit different um, that three, first three to five steps. So think of either starting from the dead or the game, you know, a, a player skating down a, a puck and then the changing direction suddenly and stopping and reaccelerating. Those first three to five strides, you're trying to create friction. It's very, very different. Instead of getting low, you're digging and hammering into the ice. So you have sinusoidal uh, vertical center of mass coming up. And for there, stiffness is a really important, uh, important quality. Yeah, stiffness of the skate, the boot, but a byproduct of focusing on stiffness or stretch shortening plyometrics or whatever you want to call it, that, that stiffness at toe off for me is really important. Um, you look at the hockey stride from a biomechanical standpoint, their stance and swing. The stance phase, you have single stance and, or a, a bilateral stance, and uh, you can even further break that down into push off and toe off. And that's really critical swing, essentially the legs in the air and you're bringing it back underneath. But those last stages, I think stiffness is really, really important. Certainly wouldn't argue the fact that the, the lion's share of work, in my opinion, should be larger impulse plyos because that's the game. But I think it fits into the toolbox um, for the athlete, specifically at toe off uh, and stiffness in the ankle complex, the an ankle foot for hockey players. Yeah, that's kind of what both Jim and Devin were getting to in their responses yeah. when I put that out. And I uh that's what I took away from it. And that's a fantastic answer. Yeah. It really yeah. It, it it definitely expanded my sort of thought on it too. Um something that I know both of us share uh, you know, a a sort of I wouldn't say fascinations word, but a big interest in is the transfer of training. Yeah. Oh. Like, yeah, I know. Yeah, exactly. That's what yeah. I oh, you know. Um because I suppose, again, as the sort of translation of Bondertruck's work has gotten better over mm -hmm. the last few years, and, you know, big credit to Derek Evely for that, and also Martin Bingeser, you know, they really sort of were able to sort of distill a lot of the principles from, from Dr. B's work. But what's your sort of take when it comes to train transfer? Because just with me, <laughs> like, it's almost, I'm at a stage in my evolution as a coach where I'm kind of always hopping back and forth. Like, it's, if I was to really sort of make it as simplistic as possible, and I hope I don't confuse people when I say this, it's kind of like I have this one voice that goes, S and C doesn't matter. And then this other voice goes, it does matter, but it just needs context. You know, that kind of way. It's kind of like you have that James Smith angel on one shot yeah. on one, on one yeah. uh, shoulder. And then like, you kind of have like this kind of more reasonable sort of, you know, yeah. it's like, the, the, there's just time, place, context. And then we have to obviously take the athlete into consideration, you know, where are they on their journey? Are they youth versus, you know, someone who's more intermediate? So obviously, are they at that mastery level? So like you just start churning these thoughts when the word um, training transfer gets into your head. And, yep. you know, then you go back yep. to like dynamic correspondence and Verkashansky. And then like, 
you start thinking about all the you know then like Bosch's stuff comes into and you're like ah because uh, because there's only these two camps are kind of like you know there's the Bosch real sort of it's coordination and specificity and direction of force and then you get other people like the Charlie Francis people are like listen when you're just in the weight room just general doesn't have to look like sport we're just building physical capacity and then let the sport be the specific part and don't get caught in this no man's land so there's so many there's so many like ways we could just diverge with this topic but when it comes to just train transfer where have you been on that oh that i i live in the gray area i'll be frank with you um i live in the gray area um i i think uh, all those individuals that you had mentioned just now are brilliant practitioners and, and i think it's interesting too that um there's so many different roads to to a similar answer to success, you know, eight plus two and two plus eight, uh, five plus five and six plus four. I mean, they all lead um, to the same answer or similar results with different application. I struggle with it, Robbie. I think I, I, as I've, as I've advanced more in my career, I'm kind of like you, I think. And when I say this, yeah, it's gotta be in the right context. Uh, yes. I think strength and conditioning matters. Uh, yes. I think every, but the less and less I think success at high level is correlated with a strong squat. Like that's to me comical. Um, I also, I try to use simple analogies. Like think about this, think about being an elite pianist, elite piano player. And you spent your whole life training for piano and someone comes up and says, do you listen, you need to take the summer off to increase the strength of your fingers. I don't, don't play the piano. I don't want you to play the piano at all. Matter of fact, you're going to have overuse and this and that, and just increase the strength of your fingers. And then at the end of the summer, I want you to come back and we're going to play in front of a packed auditorium. Let me know how you feel. You're going to be prepared for this. Like there, the best way to get good at playing the piano is playing the piano, whether it's structured, blocked practice, whether it's random practice, you, you name your motor or whatever you want to call, but you have to play the piano. Uh, certainly other things are important as well. Um, I, I think that, um, that we can do our best in the gym to look at the contraction profiles of what happens on the ice, to look at the biomechanics. Really for me, like people say hockey specific, and I know that's used as a sales tool. I'd like to think, and maybe I sit on the fence on this. I know some coaches that I hold in high regard would agree to disagree with me and say, come on, Ant, but I do believe that certain programs can be specific in nature to hockey. Like, for example, like what are the, if, if you're, if you know the biomechanics of run to glide, what are your, what are your drivers? What are your brakes? Okay. What gets, what's, what gets typically injured the most in hockey? Okay. How can we use these to build a better program? Certainly it's not going to be like you've overhauled everything and you're getting people with skates on a BOSU ball. That's not what I mean. You know, whether it's your, your growing health program, whether it's your, uh, rectus abdominis, whatever it may be to counter the, the, the forces that are experienced on the ice. To me, that's a specific program in nature. But I can tell you this, from a peripheral standpoint, nothing matches the ice. There's beautiful literature, early literature that talks about central and peripheral demands and adaptations. Um, and the best example I can give you, I think Boyle used this once a long time ago, is like Lance Armstrong had probably one of the best VO2s ever. And he finished like 765th at the Boston Marathon. It had nothing to do with his VO2. It had to do with the peripheral. He wasn't, he wasn't 
He never, he wasn't born to run. He was born to bike. He spent years and years and years on a bike. And as a byproduct of that, the peripheral demands or the peripheral adaptations, not at the central level, not from the heart, but the peripheral level and the muscle, uh, mitochondrial construction, engineering, et cetera. He was designed to ride a bike. So uh, people always say in hockey, man, like, you know, you train all summer and then I don't have my hockey legs. Well, no, of course you don't have your hockey legs. <laughs> you got to get them back. Um, so I do think there's an area. I mean, um, I sit on the fence. I think we can do our best as strength coaches to understand the biomechanics, to understand the contraction profiles, to understand the energy systems, to be able to have a quote unquote hockey specific program with those things in mind, keeping in mind that probably 15 to 20% would be hockey specific. The big dogs are the big dogs pushing and pulling. I get it. Um, but I also think that nothing takes the place of the actual sport. Another brilliant slide, and I'm going to steal this and I stole from Dan Faff. He has a big pyramid, right? You got the sport and you've got the different generations of, of growth in, in sports science or, or the, the, the growth of the sport coach. Originally, we all thought, you know, you train a sport, you train a sport. And then we got this smart idea, well, what? Wait, maybe we'll train the energy systems and to prepare for the sport. And then the next generation of, of, of coach said, man, well, why don't we lift weights and do plyos and do this and this and this and prepare for the sport? And most people, I say most people, perhaps those not involved in coaching and, 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 and dads that are or parents, that, well, they think, hey, you know, golly, young Tommy needs to keep playing the sport, keep playing the sport, and then slowly progressing to, to do the energy system work and the weights. Uh, and then the pros, they should be spending all the time in the weight room doing the plyos and the jumps. And then, you know, slowly, the, the, the reality is that's not the case. The young kids should be spending the time strength training, plyos, energy system work, and then playing multiple sports. Again, not to say that the pros shouldn't be doing strength training. That's not what I mean. But at their level, when they're making a living doing that sport, the best way they're going to get better at the sport is playing the sport. I said this, Robbie, it's actually in my book, The Game Go Grow Manual. I had the opportunity to interview Buddy Powers. This is where I'm thanking you on live camera. I'll never forget this moment. I don't know what the date was, but it was an interview that you gave with Buddy Morris. I pulled over on the side of the road when I heard this. I have it highlighted. It's a part of my slides. And here's what he said, and I'm going to summarize it. He said, a simple program can work wonders for young developing athletes and for professional athletes, but for very different reasons. He said, the young athlete needs time under tension, progressive overload, simplicity, and, and just simple linear periodization. That's simple. He said, an elite coach or elite player, what do they need? They need simplicity. They need uh, um, uh, the, the same, but, but they don't want to compete with the sport. The, the simplicity in the program is, is different. It doesn't have to be overly complex. Let's get the stimulus. Let's pull the fire alarm without burning the house down, but let's not interfere with the sport. Again, I'm not championing this idea. This is where, this is not about mindless energy system work, get on the ice, go up. That's not what I'm talking about. Talk with our pro players, get on the ice, get your touches, your edge work, your shooting, your hands. That's the most important thing. So simple programs can work for advanced level athletes and beginners but for very different reasons. You're after putting uh, finger strength coaches out of business. 
I love Buddy, by the way. And he, he that was an episode. You'll have to reference it in the podcast. I, it was one of the best episodes. Uh, I listened to your, your podcast. Um, and uh, it was an unbelievable conversation. I'll never forget the, 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 the quote that he had. And it's, it's referenced by, by myself quite a bit. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, a lot of us owe Buddy Morris uh, a debt of gratitude. One of the one of the OGs in our profession. Hundred percent. I just uh, add on to what you you were talking about there in terms of training transfer. I, I think in my, and I, I I don't want to speak for you, but would you be similar in that? Like I've given a lot more thought to you know okay we have the physical, but then there's technical, tactical, and psychological. And, you know, I've been given a lot more attention of my time to, the, you know, the, the other three elements, you know, because we, we live in the physical world, you know what I mean? So, so it's, you know, so when I look at a sport now, you know, looking at the technical, tactical, and then obviously the psychological demands and listen, that, that's a conversation we can have for hours, but just a, a little sort of piece I want to add on to this is I think, and, and I'd love to hear your thought on this. I think the reason why, the physical elements of, of all four of those is so overly focused on is because it's just the easiest one out of the three to measure, you know, like it's so easy to measure strength and, and, the, and, the, and the different aspects of power and speed. And, you know, we can, we can, you know, cause you can quantify kilograms or pounds. You can quantify seconds. Whereas like when it comes to technical and tactical and this whole skill acquisition field, like you can't actually measure learning. You can only infer it over time through performance, but you can't actually measure it there and then in the moment. And those intangibles for most humans just aren't, they don't sit well because as humans, we like more certainty. Whereas mm-hmm. like, well, are we learning? Are we not learning? And then because of this sort of quest of certainty and control, so many coaches are always looking for the quote unquote perfect technique, whereas learning should be messy. You know, if you ever see the, yeah. the, the true masters of coaches and you watch their athletes, you go, this looks awful. It's like, yeah, it's called learning. They need to be at the 100%. edge. They need, to be, yeah. they need to be at the edge of their comfort zone where it's not so difficult that it's not having any transfer, but it's not so easy that it actually has no transfer either. And then obviously there's the whole psychological element that needs to go into that, which again is another conversation. But just my little piece in that is the, the, the overemphasis in the physical is because it's so easy to measure. And finally, I don't know if for me personally as a coach growing up to anytime there was, you know, a string of poor results, the first thing that always gets questioned or always is blamed is, you know, the, the lads just aren't fit enough. They're just not fit. And it's just like, listen, if I was to get the guys tomorrow, and we did a day of testing, whether it was our strength numbers, where it was our our power numbers, our speed numbers, and our yo-yo tests, which they all love in Europe, where they did for a while, like the aerobic capacity. It's like they are all, they would all be well within competent levels to be able to support their sport demands. And it's just because most coaches and players just don't have good technical or tactical training. Like for me personally, when I played my sport, I never once heard anything about uh, uh, tactics never knew nothing about defense offense transition plays where i should be what i should do and obviously when you don't someone you're not trying to create robots on the field either but there was no appreciation for that when i was growing up obviously it's 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 more now but what are your thoughts on, on that yeah i think i think you hit the nail right on the head i had a conversation with Stu mcmillan about this as well i think we, we talked you and i i, I used this quote earlier in our conversation is that uh, we mistake the low-hanging fruit with a bountiful harvest. Uh, measurement right now is the sexy thing. Everything needs to be measured, measured, measured. 
I have a um, a module in this uh, this um, new course that I put together called the High Performance Master Class called the Tyranny of Metrics. I'm not arguing for no metrics, but there are side unintended consequences of over-reliance on metrics. I want to read for you a couple things. Uh, first of all, book recommendation, if you haven't read it. Read The Tyranny of Metrics by Robert Mueller. Mandatory read. A everyone should read it. Uh, but I essentially <clears throat> took these five blocks or these five pillars and I, I reworded these um, for sports scientists. And so here's when I look at what to measure and why measurement matters, here are things that you need to think about as a critical thinker, specifically if we're dealing with human beings. Animate versus inanimate. Karl Popper would say clouds and clocks. One's complex, one's complicated. Don't confuse the two. Well, what do I do about that, Anthony? Well, use good equipment, standardize your procedures, which is hard to do in the real world, okay? Second one, utility of significance. Ease versus significance. The easiest things to measure are those outputs. The hardest things to measure, we just talked about, technical and tactical. And by the way, uh, that is the lion's share of where I'm spending my time now as well, technical and tactical. I've had the opportunity to speak to some brilliant sport coaches in hockey, and you realize that you might play the sport your whole life, but the, the finest, the finest details from a technical and tactical standpoint are so crucial in understanding. Also, I would say this, and I'm not bad-mouthing anybody, but, and, and, and that's not what I mean, but if you're getting hired by a professional sport team, if you don't have a background in that sport, do your best to backfill those gaps immediately. Because to me, that's buy-in. That gives numbers context. Third thing, how important are the measures? Apart from outliers, does the marginal cost of continuing measure outweigh the benefits? Aside from outliers, does the marginal cost outweigh the benefits? And then not all problems are soluble. That's, I think, where true wisdom begins, right? Recognizing the limits of the possible is the beginning of wisdom. Not all problems are soluble. It's not true that everything can be improved by measurement or that everything that can be measured can be improved. That, to me, is really important. Last quote here, and this is from a gentleman named Aaron Haspel in terms of measurement. Those who believe that what you cannot quantify does not exist also believe that what you can quantify does. <laughs> Let me repeat that. Those who believe that what you cannot quantify does not exist also believe that what you can quantify does. So I think it's very important that you talk about this idea. The easiest things to measure are those physical outputs. And by the way, we all measure them. I think they're important. The, the, the for me, don't have 15 of those. Have a few of those that are high correlates to success at your sport and then rely on those if needed. So that to me... Uh, in a nutshell, is, is exactly the, the point that you reinforced, which is the tough part is, is measuring what's closest to the scoreboard. Um, but I think it's imperative that we as coaches, regardless of where you're at in your journey, understand the demands of the actual sport because numbers are just numbers. The important part about numbers. So if I look at a number as the middle ground around the number is the analyzation or excuse me, is the assumption. So what, what are we going to measure? And the analyzation. Those are subjective in nature. You have to have an understanding of the sport in order to know what you, the assumptions that you're going to use to measure 
And then most importantly, analyzing the number after you get it. Like what's a two on two in hockey? What's a one, three, one? What happens on the penalty kill? What happens on the power play? Are they playing a neutral zone four check? Because it's great to have those numbers, but do you understand the context of the game? Because those numbers may be very different on a given day. That's great stuff. This will we'll wrap up here, um, but it, I still have a few more questions for you. So definitely, definitely one I, I really want to your insights on is how do you learn? What is your learning process? Yeah, well, that's great. Um, gosh, Oof. Uh, I, early in my career, I would do this. I would be very structured and rigid with my learning. Uh, and for me, uh, I just recently got married. So I, I guess you, what you would say, I was, I was a bachelor before that. So I was extremely selfish with my time, with myself and my dog. So I don't think this is possibly doable for everybody. But I forced myself. I had my iPhone. One hour a day was spent reading, deep reading. Uh, typically early in the morning, I am an owl and not a lark. So I want to read. When I do read, I take copious notes and I take those notes and copy them in my Word document so I can reference those if needed. Um, so that's, that's I, I can aggregate information that way. Um, more and more now, it's conversations that I'm having uh, on my podcast, on your podcast of just having unbelievable conversations with super smart people that have years and years of experience where I can just, I call it windshield learning. I like podcasts and I like uh, speaking with people live. Um, so those are, those are two areas where I, I, uh, I, I, I challenge myself learning. And then I think some of it comes down to personality. Like I think I can speak on your behalf, Robbie, because you know, although you and I have met one time and shaken hands one time, like, I know the kind of person you are in terms and measures of your learning. Like you're an autodidact. Like no one's going to say, Robbie Bork, go read a book. <laughs> you probably read 15 in the last five days. Like there's part of that. That's just, you're passionately hungry to get better at what you do. And then the last thing I'll say in terms of learning for me, the last five, six years of my life, I don't know if I've read one strength and conditioning book, but everything that I've read can be related to strength and conditioning. Everything. There's some unbelievable podcasts out there that have nothing to do with strength training, but I listen to them because I know I can, I can be a better critical thinker uh, and it, it, I, can, I can use that information in, in, in what we do. And just to follow on that, how do you filter that and, and synthesize that information to, to, to create something from it? Or, or even how do you consolidate it and then sort of merge it into, into something practical, if you like, or applicable to your settings? Yeah, great question. Um, I think filters come from my mentors um, and people that I hold in high regard. So, you know, I might ask some a question to somebody like you. Hey, Robbie, what do you think about this? Hey, Dan, hey Coach Faf, what do you think about this? I, I use those filters all the time. Um, I'm not a big, although I'm on social media, but to me, I want to have four or five people that I hold and, you know, I, I, I have a network of people that I, I'd like to filter through. Um, and I know the content and their, their responses will be great. How do I aggregate that? Uh, man, I get into, so after I put all those notes together, I have different folders in my, in my file. Perhaps one is aerobic adaptations. Perhaps one is um, plyometric training or jump training. So I take those notes that I've read those books over the years and I, I bucket those into, uh, into files. And then the last thing I'll say through my PhD work, which has been unbelievable, I, I didn't realize you know, I wish I had this the last four years. Uh, I don't know if you used it in your in your master's course, Robbie, but there's and there's different um, 
companies that do this. Mine's called EndNote, which is essentially all of my journal articles. So if I need to reference anything, it's a quick snap of a, a mouse and I can, I can house those journal articles that I think are really important. And then I can reference them pretty quickly. So that's how I try to keep track of everything. Great stuff. I used to always ask for like people's top books and all, all like a lot of the time. And as I evolved as a person, I realized book recommendations need a lot of context because, you know, it, it really comes down to, well, who's asking the question? Because and I'll give you just a small, quick story. And I know people who listen to my podcast, you know, because I get this feedback that I speak too much, but it's my show. So fuck off. That's right. Um, but uh, when I taught at a personal training college, like they get this list of book recommendations to the students and the nutrition one was nutrition and physical degeneration by Weston A. Price. And yeah. while that, while that is a phenomenal book, no doubt, if you're completely green to nutrition, yeah. that is not the book you want to be reading as yeah. your reference. So yeah. it, it made me, cause I used to, I used to recommend that book before I became a lecturer. I was like, hold on, these are the people that I'm recommending this book to or yeah. use it. And like, so I sort of evolved that question um, instead of just blindly asking, like, you know, what's your best book recommendation? So I suppose, like, if you do have any book recommendations or if you have sort of book recommendations in certain fields, you can feel free to, to say that. But the question I just go with now is what are you currently reading and what would be your top book recommendation? Like, what's been the best reading material that you've, you've come across lately? But if there's anything you want to add to that in terms of I feel this is a great book in this specific um yeah. topic like snc nutrition medicine life development so both the original the original question book, is what are you currently reading yeah book i'm reading statistics for those for those for uh for people who think they hate statistics um so that's what i'm currently reading um what the most one of the most profound books that i've had the opportunity to read over the years uh at least that changed the way i thought um you and i spoke off air about this idea of philosophy a, a philosopher that's had massive impact on me. And I know you spoke, you've spoken um, before to James, but Karl Popper, uh, his book, Objective Knowledge is so crucial to me as, as growing as a critical rationalist of being able to disagree without an ego, of being able to try to find holes in hypotheses, including your own. Um, I think that's a mandatory book, a really important book. Uh, it is a philosopher type book but it shows this this schema that I think is so critical called the schema of conjectures and refutations that he eloquently puts in this book. I think that's the bedrock of everything that we do in terms and measures of being strength and conditioning coaches. So strong recommendation. One of my favorites all time is Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, I struggle with this, uh, you know, to find, I think they say, it, uh, bringing it down to three things, do good deeds, find, uh, uh, you know, find somewhat something or someone to love, right? Like, give your heart to someone or something. And then the last one for me is the hardest is find meaning in suffering. And that's not easy to do in life. Um, and I need to reference that book. I need to reread that book, but it was a tearjerker for me. And it was an important read for me. So those are probably ones that I, that I think come to mind immediately. Yeah. It's a phenomenal book, man. Search for me. And I remember, yeah. I can remember where I was. And I read that I was at a, a seminar in London, December, 2013. I can remember that. That's, that's how ingrained I was. I was so engrossed. I remember it's a yeah. phenomenal book yeah. and it's one I need to read again. Logo therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, last one for you. Um, and no doubt you've, you've heard this question loads of times. So yeah. you've had time to prepare for this. If, yeah. if, yeah, uh, if you can invite five people to dinner. <laughs> okay. I like this dead or alive. 
who would you invite and why? And you can also bring fictitious people to this so they can be characters. They don't have to be real people, but dead so, or alive so, people. So if you want to, do you want an interesting answer, meaning like non immediate family, like my, you know, or do you want like just people that I haven't met? No, or does no, it... any, anyone you want. If it's going to be family, it's going to be family. I, I don't. Oh, well, it would be, it would definitely be my father back. Um, I, he was just such an unbelievable person. So taught so many valuable lessons, uh, just an outstanding human being. Uh, pioneer through the game of hockey. I, I could go on and on. So my dad, for sure. My grandpa, uh, on my on my mom's side, he was a farmer. Um, he was a hardworking man. Uh, he he uh, created a legacy, and I'm proud of him. So my grandma, and gra- or excuse me, my, my dad and my grandpa. Um, I'll I'll switch it up to non-family because I think these ones will be interesting. I, I would have all family members sitting around the table, by the way, just because that's the kind of person our family is really close. But I'll, I'll make it interesting for the listener. Tupac Shakur, uh, he's one of the reasons that uh, I wrote poetry. I love Tupac. Uh, I know that we come from very different ways, but um, he hits my heart and I love Tupac. Bruce Springsteen, one of my favorite songwriters. I love uh, super, super talented guy. And last would be Carl Popper. So I'd have my dad, my grandpa, Carl Popper, Tupac Shakur, and Bruce Springsteen. That would be one hell of a dinner. I might have a couple uh, uh, Nicaraguan cigars and a couple bourbons with those guys. So just to follow up from that, um, one thing just going back from earlier, you mentioned that book Force by Dan Cleather. He, yeah. he he was my uh, he was he 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 was my head at Mary's. So I know I know Dan well. He's a, that was a great, by the way, I have that in my, he's, that was a fantastic book. I really enjoyed, uh, I really enjoyed his content. Another thing I love about him too is he, he simplifies things for me. So I, I appreciate people that do that. You would really enjoy Dan because he's very big on Karl Popper as well. Very big. And he's, he's very similar in certain ways to James, to James Smith yep. in, in certain ways. Um, he's just, he's, because uh, his actual, his original background's in maths. Like he, he's a mathematician. Wow. Like, yeah, so he well, thinks he thinks really logically, like you know. Yep, so he's yep. a bit he's a bit more from that Vulcan clan, if you like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If, you get, if you get what I mean. And um, another thing that just came to my mind there: Have you listened to Barack Obama's podcast with Bruce Springsteen? I have not. I have so, not heard it. So if you go into now, I use iTunes, but I'm sure it's on yeah. all other apps. But if you just type in Barack Obama podcast, there's there's a number of podcasts with him and Bruce. They did. I think there, I don't know if there's like seven or eight of them, but it's really, really, really good. They, they talk about different topics. Like one is about the music of their youth. Yeah. And then they, you know, they talk about their careers and like race in America and loads of different. It's really good. And just listening to the uh-huh. two of them is great. So I think you really I, enjoy that. I love it. I will. I will check them out for sure. Yeah. So Anthony, where can um, the listeners find out more about you? Yeah. Uh, social media, just at Anthony Donskoff. Uh, same thing with, uh, with Instagram. Um, those are probably the best places to get in touch with me and, and, uh, I'll go from there. Absolutely. I'll put everything in the show notes. Um, and Anthony, I'll see his two books that he authored. It's just two, isn't it? I'm not missing one. Yep. 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 Perfect. Uh, just give the name for those. The first one was physical yeah. preparation for hockey. Was it? Yeah. Physical preparation for ice hockey. Um, and then that's the, that's the first one biological principles and practical solutions. And then the other one is the physical preparation part two, the gain, go, grow model. Great stuff. Again, I'll link all that up to show notes. And last thing, Robbie, just want to tell you, thank you again. I know I told you the onset of this, but you've been doing this a long time and the amount of, of information that you've been able to share with people 
has changed people for the better. I can tell you that I listened to your podcast, one of the, the most recent ones with a, Pat Davidson, who's a beast, by the way. Hmm. And, and, and whether it's James Smith, whether it's Buddy, like, I mean, you're one of the OGs in the podcast business and you need to be thanked for that because you've put a lot of information out to a lot of people and you've helped a lot of people and you've left your imprint for sure. So I want to thank you for that, man. It means a lot. Really appreciate it. So yep. just for the listeners, as I always say at the end of all my podcasts that have been going for 11 years, it has been quite a long time. Um, until next time, take care, be well and stay strong. Mm-hmm.